Welcome Beyond the Walls with Team World Vision. My name is Chantal Hayes-Randall. For Black History Month, we will be featuring short biographies of important figures in Black history at the beginning of each episode. This week, we are featuring Benjamin Banneker, a free African-American almanac author, surveyor, landowner, and farmer who had knowledge of mathematics and natural history. Born on November 9, 1731, Banneker grew up on a 100-acre tobacco farm owned by his parents, a formerly enslaved man and the daughter of a mixed-race couple along the Patapsco River in the area now known as Oella. As African-American homesteaders, the family experienced not just freedom, but also a quintessentially American version of independence and economic self-determination that was rarely possible for non-whites. Still, the color of their skin alienated them from the community of nearby farmers. Amid a rising tide of sentiment against free blacks in the colonies, Banneker's family had to tread lightly in their own neighborhood. Nevertheless, Benjamin received an education that was uncommon not just for his race, but for his geographic location, where literacy was relatively low. His grandmother, an Irish-born former indentured servant, taught him how to read and write, and Benjamin continued his studies alongside both white and black classmates at a one-room school nearby. His hunger for knowledge went beyond the classroom. In his early 20s, Banneker gained local admiration by hand-carving a wooden clock that kept perfect time. He had studied the gears of a pocket watch to master the mechanics. There would not have been many clocks in rural Maryland in the mid-18th century, and Banneker's was later referred to as one of the curiosities of the wild region. Though Banneker hosted many visitors who came to see the clock, it took him years to find an intellectual community. In 1771, the Ellicotts, a Quaker family from Pennsylvania, moved to Baltimore County and established a gristmill just a few miles down the road from Banneker's tobacco farm. Perhaps owing to his reputation as a man of letters or due to his curiosity about the construction of the mill, Banneker soon connected with his new neighbors, in particular George Ellicott, a land surveyor with a passion for astronomy who loaned Banneker technical books and lunar tables. Banneker had already sold off some of his land to finance his retirement, and since he was spending less time on the farm, he quickly mastered the discipline. In 1789, the year he turned 58, he forecast his first eclipse. Meanwhile, the stars were aligning for Banneker on Earth. On July 16, 1790, Congress passed the Residence Act, establishing a new federal city to be constructed along the Potomac River. President George Washington appointed three commissioners to oversee its construction, and Andrew Ellicott, George's cousin, was brought on as a practical engineer. Needing assistance on the project with his usual associates otherwise occupied, Andrew invited Banneker to join him in mapping out the future seat of the federal government. It was the first time in his life Banneker ventured more than 10 miles from his farm. President Washington and Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, whose 1785 book Notes on the State of Virginia stated that people of African descent were intellectually inferior to whites, were aware of Banneker's participation. Meanwhile, an article about the survey in the Georgetown Weekly Ledger praised Banneker's abilities. Ellicott is attended by Benjamin Banneker, an Ethiopian, whose abilities as a surveyor and as an astronomer clearly prove that Mr. Jefferson's concluding that race of men were void of mental endowments was without foundation. 
After consulting on the federal city project, Banneker returned to his farm in April 1791 and resumed work on an almanac for farmers. At the time, almanacs were mainly used to predict long-range weather patterns, but they also provided a way to share opinions and other types of content. As many of his possessions were destroyed in a fire shortly after his death, Banneker's slim booklets, published annually from 1792 to 1797 by white northern abolitionists, offer a rare window into not only the author's skill as an astronomer, but also into his personality and outlook. They reveal a man with a full heart and an active mind, at turns contemplative and lighthearted, a scientist on one page and a philosopher on the next. Banneker's publishing debut, Benjamin Banneker's Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia Almanac and Ephemeris for the year of our Lord 1792, makes no reservations about the author's race. It begins with testimonials from the editors and from James McHenry, a prominent Maryland statesman, attesting to the author's gifts. The following pages contained an essay on the cosmos, a fable about domestic life, a formula for tree medicine, and words of wisdom. Finally, the almanac takes up advocacy, publishing an excerpt from an essay by abolitionist David Rittenhouse, originally printed in Columbian Magazine. With few publishers capable of checking Banneker's calculations, the task of peer review had fallen to Rittenhouse, a scientist and fellow surveyor who called the almanac's measurements a very extraordinary performance considering the color of the author. Though Rittenhouse was approving his work, Banneker nevertheless took umbrage at his qualification, writing, I am annoyed to find that the subject of my race is so much stressed. The work is either correct or it is not. In this case, I believe it to be perfect. Banneker was clearly frustrated by the attention paid to his race instead of his work. No matter how unique his talents or special his accomplishments, contemporaries and critics always reverted to a discussion of his skin color. There was no talking about Benjamin Banneker, even in praise, without remarking on his background. Perhaps it was exhaustion as much as outrage that led Banneker to mail an advance copy of the almanac to Secretary of State Jefferson in August 1791. Because the almanac was still in production, Banneker handwrote the entire 48-page publication again. Accompanying the almanac was a 1,400-word letter challenging the Secretary of State invoking Jefferson's comparison of British rule of the colonies to an intolerable state of servitude. Banneker pointed out the hypocrisy of Americans who were forcing Blacks, my brethren, he called them, into actual servitude. He says, How pitiable it is to reflect that although you were so fully convinced of the benevolence of the father of mankind and of his equal and impartial distribution of those rights and privileges which he had conferred upon them, that you should at the same time be found guilty of that most criminal act, that which you professedly detested in others with respect to yourselves. He stopped short of telling Jefferson to emancipate the men, women, and children he enslaved. Jefferson owned over 600 during his lifetime, but the message was clear. Banneker used his almanac as an extension of himself, a man of the African race of the darkest dye, to prove that black people were just as capable of whites and would show it if they were given their freedom. Rather than commit to any political action, Jefferson let Banneker know that he had forwarded the almanac to Marquis de Condorcet, a French philosopher and mathematician, calling it a document to which your whole color had a right for their justification against the doubts 
which have been entertained of them. Of course, Jefferson himself had been casting these doubts, and a letter he wrote to his friend Joel Barlow in 1809 revealed the almanac had hardly affected him. I have a long letter from Banneker, Jefferson wrote, which shows him to have had a mind of very common stature indeed. Not to be deterred, Banneker published his correspondence with Jefferson shortly after the appearance of the almanac in 1792. The pamphlet circulated quickly, going through two editions in 1792, and several other magazines and almanacs reprinted the exchange during the 1790s, including the Baltimore edition of Banneker's 1793 almanac. The letters reinvigorated discourse over the problem of slavery, but Banneker did not advocate for abolition in his almanacs thereafter, possibly because it was dangerous to push the envelope further in a state that permitted slavery. On October 9, 1806, Banneker died at his farm in Oella. Days later, during his funeral, his house caught fire, destroying most of his writings and possessions. He never married and had no children. Therefore, much of what we know about him today comes from records left behind by others. Martha Ellicott Tyson, George Ellicott's daughter, wrote biographies of Banneker in 1854 and 1845. John H. B. Latrobe shared stories about Banneker he had collected from his acquaintances for the Maryland Historical Society. Perhaps owing to the scarcity of recorded fact about his remarkable life, and because he was often invoked symbolically to advance social causes, Banneker's story has making. He has been incorrectly credited with drawing the street grid of Washington, D.C., making the first clock on the eastern seaboard, being the first professional astronomer in America, and discovering the 17-year birth cycle of cicadas. With little documentation regarding enslaved people and the lives they lived, and only slightly more about free African Americans in early Washington, Banneker stands out for a number of reasons, not the least of which are his encounters with the nation's most well-known historical figures. Inevitably, Banneker, the man and the myth, has come to represent the talents and personalities of millions of other African Americans whose lives history failed to preserve. A free, black, self-made man surveying the future capital would seem to align with the American ideals of individualism and equal opportunity. But... The epic construction projects for which Banneker helped plant the first stake were carried out heavily on the backs of enslaved laborers, people of common descent who were explicitly denied those ideals. In this sense, Banneker lived at the center of conflicting stories about the founding of the United States, a contradiction that Washington, D.C. epitomized. Banneker's presence at this ideological crossroads and his persistence through it also make his story definitively American with no qualifiers warranted. Hey there, friends. As we head into the beginning of the training season for Seattle, and many of our fall runners are dusting off their shoes, I've really been thinking about what it was like the first time I signed up for a race. I even have a bit of a running background, and I was nervous, scared, and felt like I had no idea what I was doing. What had I actually signed up for, and what was actually entailed in this whole marathon running world? On top of that, while giving kids clean water was absolutely exciting, the fundraising was 
more than intimidating, to be honest. And if you didn't feel that way, well, congratulations. I mean, you were ahead of the game. But the truth is 80% of our team every year is completely new to running. I mean, new. No 5K, let alone a marathon. So, like just about anything that you experience as a total newbie, you can't help but take a look back at the journey and think, wow, the things I wish I would have known. And that's exactly what we're going to have some fun with today, discussing that, what we wish we'd known at the beginning of this crazy journey. So from all the way in Seattle, down to Phoenix, then up to the Midwest, we're joined by some area directors, as well as a few of our finest team captains to reflect and share what they wish they would have known back in the day. Now, get ready for some good laughs, but also some real heartfelt encouragement from these inspiring teammates of ours. This topic just makes me laugh. I mean, what I wish I would have known before my first marathon. (laughs) You guys, there are so many things I wish I would have known or done differently. But I think the first one that comes to mind was the shoes. So, I mean, I definitely wasn't very athletic before and I had probably tennis shoes from time to time, but I didn't even realize what a good pair of running shoes was. So I found a great deal at Costco and I bought my first pair of running shoes. And I can tell you after that race, I think I lost two toenails. So (laughs) I definitely learned the hard way that going to a running store, having a gait analysis and letting them tell you what shoes you should be in was actually worth it. That was one of the first things I learned the hard way. (laughs) Another story that I think back to Um, that just makes me laugh every time when I think about my first marathon was my first long run. So my first training run that was a long run, um, I did all kinds of research online about what kind of nutrition I needed. And everything was foreign to me. So they had all kinds of goos you could take. Yeah, and I just had no idea what those were. (laughs) So I looked up what the equivalents were with things that I had. And I found out that if I ate nine jelly beans, that would be the equivalent calories to what was in a goo. So so I filled up a Ziploc bag and I safety pinned it to my pants with nine jelly beans in it. And when I got really tired on my run... I took those nine jelly beans and I almost choked on one of them. So that also didn't go over really well for my first long run, the training for that marathon. Luckily, by the time the race actually happened, I did learn um, where I could find goos also at running stores. You can even buy them on Amazon now. But man, again, I learned the hard way. And I think the final thing about my first marathon was the fundraising. So I set a goal, which I thought was just so high and unreachable of $2,000. And through that season, I think finding people to ask for donations was actually probably more work for me than training for the marathon. I thought it was just like all my effort was going into fundraising and I reached my $2,000 goal. 
So I thought after that, I could never set a goal that high again. But after completing the race and seeing how excited people were and just hearing from friends how inspired they were, I signed up for another race. And for my second race, I set a $10,000 goal. And I learned that all the people that gave to me that first round, when they saw that I had a bigger goal, they not only gave again, but they gave more. And I learned that being committed to the work that World Vision was doing um, gave them a safe place to donate to. And so I've had incredible support over the years, time and time again, just by giving people a safe place to donate to because if I believe in it enough to run a marathon and to take on the training, then they have been trusting me with giving their hard-earned money to the cause. I guess that's what I learned, not setting the bar too low and <laughs> just taking on big goals. Hello, past, present, future Team World Vision teammates. Uh, my name is Jason Bangle, and I represent the Detroit Mitten team up in Michigan here. What do I wish I would have known back in 2017 before I said yes? I really took some time to reflect on this and think about this. I just feel like I wouldn't have changed anything, and I... and. I wouldn't have wanted to know anything because I think the fun in this journey is stepping into fear and stepping into the unknown and just allowing God to transform you and refine you through the process. I know that's what I needed in my journey um, because there's certainly a lot of growth in my first year of training and running with Team World Vision. I said yes to Team World Vision in 2017 at a church launch, and I jumped right into being a captain and running a full marathon in my first year with not having any running experience at all. But I think that that unknown and stepping into fear just allowed a lot of growth and refinement uh, for, for my journey which I've learned a lot in each of the years that uh, I've run with World Vision. Um, I'm entering into my fourth year of running, and each and every year there's something that I experience that I learn and grow in, and I think that's the fun and exciting part about it. I think if we have, we know know all the facts and what to do entering into a race season, <laughs> I, I think it, it won't be as exciting and, and God couldn't necessarily refine us through the process. But yes, it would have been nice to know some nutrition facts and, and how to hydrate and use nutrition during a race and that training consistently and following a plan makes the day of running that much easier. Yes, those are those are all great things, things that I've learned each and every year. And as I am consistent and are intentional in those areas, it certainly does make the uh, race day experience a lot easier. But uh, again, I, I wouldn't change anything. I think uh, God knew exactly what I needed to know at the time I said yes. 
and he certainly used me to make an impact and feel like I had a purpose uh, in this amazing cause. I guess I would add that when I said yes in 2017, I had a different why. I probably had more of a surface level reason why. And if I had a deeper and more knowledgeable understanding of the impact and the purpose at that time, it probably would have changed my intentionality of fundraising and training during my first year. But I knew what I knew back in 2017, went through the process, and uh, God certainly used me in his way. He helped me uh, have a purpose. And I'm grateful and thankful and praise God for all that he did. Hello, my name is Josh Mays, and my wife Erin and I have been running with Team World Vision since 2013. I've learned a lot over the past eight years of running with Team World Vision, but there's a couple of things that stand out that I certainly wish I knew at the beginning. Today I'd like to share two items with you. One is in regards to fundraising, and one is in regards to the actual training. Let's start with the fundraising. The thing I wish I knew when I started is just how much people are eager to support you. I sort of stumbled into this realization when I invited a coworker of mine to run with us rather than ask for fundraising donations. And his response was, dude, I will write a check. I will do anything you need to support you, but I am not running. And in that moment, I realized that people simply want to be a part of what you're doing, but they actually believe that the running is harder and that the monetary donations are easier. Once I realized that, it changed my approach. Um, and so I began inviting everyone that I knew to, to run with us. I would say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? I ran six miles with my group from Team World Vision. It's a great way to start a Saturday morning. You should come join us. And what I found is, for me, that was an easier conversation to have than jumping straight to the conversation about money. But it also sort of broke down the barrier invited them to be a little bit closer to the journey that I was on. It invited them into what the 18 weeks of training is like and gave me more chances to talk about Team World Vision with them. And for me, what I found is once I would invite people to run, sometimes they would say yes. Uh, and then I would consider that to be a great victory, even though it didn't show up on my fundraising page inviting another runner to to join is one of the most effective ways to to end the water crisis so that's always great but more often than not an invitation to join and run would turn into a more comfortable conversation about how that other person could partner with us and then by gauging their response it would allow me to make a much more um accurate and appropriate fundraising ask from them. So uh, what I wish I knew regarding fundraising was how easy it is to get the conversation started if you don't start with the money. So I would encourage you to uh, invite people to be a part of what you're doing simply by saying, hey, join me on Saturday and come run with us. And they'll do anything they can to get out of it, possibly even write a check on the spot. As far as training, 
there's something specifically to running a first full marathon that I would like to share. I don't think I'm the only one who had probably ran half marathons, but maybe until Team World Vision came knocking at the door, had never considered running a full marathon. And so if you're in that group today, this is specifically who I would like to to challenge. My mental understanding was that 26.2 miles is twice as long as 13.1. But what I came to realize is that that is not true. And this is what I wish someone had told me when I signed up for my first marathon. The truth is, when you learn how to run a half marathon, you're learning much more than just how to cover the 13 miles. You're learning about distance running overall. You're learning how to eat, how to sleep, how to set out your clothes the night before, what kind of shoes work for you and don't work. There's so many other pieces of the running lifestyle that you have to ramp up and get under control, if you will, before you can even attempt to move from 10 miles to 11 to 12 to 13. And what I found is if you have ran half marathons before, you're actually adding mileage, but you're not doubling the effort. And so I chose to look at it as a 18-week training plan to take me from a person who could run 13 to a person who could run 20. And when you look at it that way, it gave me 18 weeks to increase my personal best by seven miles. And that seemed manageable. And so once I went through that, I found that by about week eight in the training, you're running a half marathon every weekend, which, you know, looks daunting at first. When you first check out the 26-mile training plan, you see all those weeks of running, you know, 13, 14, 15 miles, and it seems daunting. But after a while, that starts to work for you rather than against you. And this is the part that I'd love to encourage my first-time marathoners with. After about six or eight weeks of running what used to be your ceiling, your personal best of a half marathon, you're crushing that with added miles every week for seven or eight weeks in a row. By the time you run the 20 miler, you feel like you're ready to go because suddenly the idea of of setting a personal best again for the eighth week in a row doesn't seem that bad because you've just done it for seven, seven or eight weeks in a row already. I guess what I just want to encourage you is if you're on the fence, maybe you've ran a half marathon before, but Team World Vision is encouraging you to sign up and do the full, you've got what it takes to do it. You're more than halfway there. And those are the words I wish somebody would have told me a lot sooner. So no matter what it is, whether it's fundraising, whether it's training, we all have barriers that need kicked down uh, in our lives. And obviously it's God that helps us step through fear and find out um, what he has on the other side that's for us, that's better for us. And I would just encourage you to invite others to run. Uh, It's a way of kicking down that barrier to talk about fundraising. And I would encourage you to sign up and do the full marathon and recognize that you are mentally much more than halfway there. If you've ever ran a half marathon before, you can do it uh, and it is in your future. My name is Nick Maroki. I ran the Kansas City Half Marathon back in 2018. That was my first uh, ever marathon. And uh, what I wish I had known during that season was actually something quite simple. Uh, it was uh, use the resources. And when I say the resources, I mean use all the resources. Okay. 
took uh, some hard lessons that year by not doing that. And I wish you would, uh, you know, maybe take a second to heed my advice this year as you take on if this is your first ever marathon or half marathon. First, I'm going to start with group runs, right? Group runs are critical. They're like the, the your lifeline. I know that in the midst of a pandemic uh, and things looking the way they are, that that's not always an option. But if it is an option, I'm going to encourage you to really consider doing that. I'll tell you why. I remember the first time I went to a group run, I sat in the car, terrified, didn't think I could do it because everybody else is going to be running faster than me, runner runners. And here I am just trying to uh, get out and do my first long run. Okay. And I kind of come in late. So I thought maybe that's not going to work too well. People are already trained up and I'm not, but, and I'd actually missed like two or three group runs before that. And I had been invited to, and then guess what happens, right? I get there. I'm terrified, but then I do it. I go, right. We're stepping through fear. That's what we're doing. Right. So I go and I, Join the group run and everybody there was so supportive. Okay. And I didn't realize that I needed that. Like that was the, my fuel to come back and keep training throughout the week and come back the next Saturday. So those group runs were awesome. Uh, the encouragement that I got, uh, just the, the energy that was there was just so important. So if you can make it to a group run, I'm going to tell you that is one of the most important resources you can use. Another resource, remember like on the website where it has all the things you need to do in case you forget what they told you at the launch, start slow. That's super important. I tried to run my fastest mile the first day. I didn't listen to resources. That did not end well. Small things like stretching. Stretching is important. All right. If you don't stretch, you'll quickly learn why it's so important to, to stretch. Even if the first couple runs go well, okay, it's more about uh, the, what happens throughout the season. Uh, for me, like, you know, I kind of didn't do much stretching at the beginning, but I learned my lesson quick. And, you know, by the time I was kind of getting to longer, longer miles, I was stretching, making sure I was taking it, uh, listening to that uh, advice. Uh, nutrition, man, there is a lot of great resources out there, uh, even on, especially the uh, Team World Vision uh, website. But, you know, if you can find a way to keep your body fueled during runs and then also throughout the week, that nutrition is critical. And it took me a couple of weeks to figure out while I was kind of tanking on some of my runs, while other people were out there thriving. Uh, and it was like, oh, wait, you guys are doing these, these taking these steps. Uh, you've listened to the resources. You, you drink a lot of water throughout the week. You've got your electrolytes on your long run days, things like that. Quick tip, ice bath. All right. Ever done that? Even if it's just like your legs, whatever. I, I saw that somewhere in one of the resources and I was like, oh, I should bath too cold. I should do it. But after I did it, man, the recovery time was so awesome. Uh, or so quick, I guess I should say. So, but most of all, that training plan, that training plan is not something that's just there for us to look at and put on our fridge. That is a legit time tested training plan that is going to put you in the best position to be successful. And I'll be honest, I didn't stick to it at first. And I wish I would have because I would have had, I would have got further a lot faster than I did that season. Uh, the next year when I did follow the training plan, when I did the nutrition, the stretching, um, attend all the group runs. I had the best year ever, and I went from running a half marathon to a full marathon, all right? So, uh, and that's me, and I'd never run. I, I was not a runner, okay? If you could, this is a podcast, uh, so you can't see me, but I am not a runner, I promise you, all right? But I will say this, I was born in Kenya, so a lot of people think that I'm a natural runner, right? But go ahead and look up some of my times for the half and full, and you'll see that I definitely don't run like a Kenyan, all right? But I still finished, that's all that matters, folks. My last tip, this is the biggest pro tip, kind of just kind of uh, something that's going to help you out. Create a great playlist. Work on your playlist, okay? 
because that's going to really push you through on a lot of those runs. Create a great playlist. I do suggest a lot of Taylor Swift uh, if you're a Taylor Swift fan. If not, it's all good. Uh, things I wish I knew when I first started running Team World Vision. There are so many things that I wish I would have known when I said yes. Um, one is one thing that I really wish I would have known. And, you know, in retrospect, I did know this. I just kind of ignored it, I guess. I thought, well, um, how serious can it really be? Is that the uh, cross training days don't mean rest days. Okay. I need to say that again. Cross training does not mean rest days. And I really, really learned my lesson. I, I think I was trying to um, train the least amount as I possibly could. And that was one place that I just totally, you know, cut the corner, I guess. So um, it all kind of came to a head though during my 20 mile run. My 20 mile run was, yeah, quite the adventure. A small team of us went out through North Bend here in Washington and took on our 20 miles. And I remember it was at mile 19. Okay. So I was 19 miles into this and I felt a snap in the back of my leg. But at this point I had been running for 19 miles. So like everything in my body hurt, my lower back hurt, my feet hurt, my arms hurt, my head hurt. I mean, literally my hands hurt, everything hurt that could possibly hurt. And I remember I felt this snap. I mean, it was a physical release of tension. And when that happened, I remember thinking how bad it hurt, but also having the thought, wow, it doesn't actually hurt any more than the rest of my body, so I'm just going to keep going. And it uh, turned out that I had um, pulled my hamstring. I did finish out the 20-mile run, but ended up spending a lot of time in physical therapy between the 20-mile run and the actual marathon. I actually didn't even run a step between the 20-mile run and the, the full marathon, so I ended up going into the marathon even more undertrained than I initially would have been if I would have just taken care of my body and done that cross training. So I wish uh, in retrospect, I could, I could rewind time and really take that cross training seriously, you know, work on, on my hips and my legs and just now knowing what I know about running and the mechanics of it, that cross training is just so vital to successful race. Um, the other thing I wish that I would have known is, listen, Icy Hot is incredible or BioFreeze. If you don't have Icy Hot or BioFreeze, man, that got me through my marathon. Like I, I was sore in so many places and the BioFreeze just got me through it. But one thing I wish I would have known is you really shouldn't put a huge slab of BioFreeze on your lower back because let me just tell you a little bit about this. You put a slab of BioFreeze on your lower back and then you're sweating and it's dripping and all of a sudden you are on fire in places you don't want to be. So just, you guys, just be careful of where you put your BioFreeze or your Icy Hot. Think about where it could possibly wander and just use precaution. I guess the last thing that I wish I would have known going into running a full marathon, especially for Team World Vision, is that people are willing to give. I mean, it blew my mind who was sending donations, the amount of donations, 
Um, if I just shared my journey, right? So if I would have trained for a Chicago Marathon and never told anyone, I, I wouldn't have received any donations, obviously. But I just began to share my story in little snippets, whether I was in person with friends or family, just telling them that I'm taking on a marathon and, and I'm doing it to, to bring life-changing clean water to kids on the other side of the world to bring real transformation. People got behind me. And it was shocking. So sometimes that was in person. Sometimes it was on social media. I even sent out an email to people that I hadn't talked to in some time. And the response was absolutely overwhelming. And I think going into marathon training, I wish that I would have started telling my story a little bit earlier. I really didn't start talking about it until I was quite a ways into training. And in retrospect, man, I wish that I could have just rewind time and and start start at the beginning and bring people along um, in the journey the entire way. I wish I I wish I would have known how excited my community was going to be about supporting me in this journey. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope that you've learned a thing or two, and without a doubt, I'm sure that at least one of these stories resonated with you if you've been moving your feet with us for a little while. Next week, we're changing things up a bit, and we're doing a high-level deep dive. I know, is that even possible? Yes. A high-level deep dive on just how World Vision works as Don Lee joins us beyond the walls. But until next time, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. See you then.